Last week, we saw that Satan is at work even within the church. And in the seven days since our previous meeting, Southern Baptist Convention released a long report on sexual abuse and cover-up within the convention. A shooter entered an elementary school in Uvalde, Texas, killing many. Tornadoes ripped through Iredale and Cabarrus County, even in our own backyard. And then this weekend, we set aside as a time to remember the cost of freedom. To remember what we so easily take for granted. That freedom of speech, freedom to worship like this, freedom of the press, freedom from search and seizure, freedom to vote for the candidate you choose, freedom to think in a way different from the majority of people think, freedom to start a business, freedom to quit a job, freedom to move wherever you wish, that these freedoms were purchased with the lives of many. And that these freedoms may well have to be defended in the future with more lives. So thus, all these things point to our living in a dangerous world, a broken world, a fallen world. And in the midst of all these problems, all these trials, indeed, all these horrors, where do we find hope? Well, verses 16 and 17 in our text give us the answer. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God the Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Eternal comfort, good hope, All ours by grace, all undeserved, all from God the Father, all from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now remember, Paul writes this letter to believers in Thessalonica who are under serious persecution. Paul himself had to flee the city. And as we saw last week, the apostle had just reminded them that Satan will bring about a large falling away and apostasy from the church. So, the Thessalonians are faced with persecution today and apostasy in the future. Rah, rah, wow, isn't that wonderful? They might well ask, Like us, where do we find hope? And Paul answers. He says, your hope is in the gospel. For in the gospel, we have hope today for every day, whatever is affecting us this day, and we have an even greater hope for all eternity. 
So we have hope if we live today in light of Jesus' return. If we live each day knowing that he is the king, he is the Lord, all authority in heaven and earth is invested in him, and he will return to establish that eternal justice. Well, this is our second sermon on this chapter, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Last week, we focused on verses 1 to 12. Next week, we're going to focus on verses 15 to 17. I just read 16 and 17. Today, our focus is verses 13 and 14. Let me read those to you, and we're going to leave this projected on the screen throughout the sermon. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord. Because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that then flows into his statement of our hope in those next two verses. Outline today, very simple. Two parts. First, six ways we have hope like the Thessalonians. Six ways we have hope that we can identify through those verses on the screen. That's going to be the bulk of the sermon. So don't worry if, that, if it gets to be almost 11 o'clock and I still haven't gotten to the second part of the sermon. <laughs> second part, one way we are to be like Paul. So six in the first part, only one in the second part. So six ways we have hope, like the Thessalonians, then one way we are to be like Paul. In verses 13 and 14, Paul brings out six interrelated truths that should bring hope to the Thessalonians and indeed to all who are in Christ in the succeeding centuries. The first of the six is the basis for all the others, And that is, God loves you. Verse 13, in the middle. Brothers beloved by the Lord. Don't get hung up on brothers. It's brothers and sisters. It's everyone in Christ. And so you, male and female, young or old, rich or poor, in Christ for decades, or a brand new believer, God loves you. He loves you as an individual, not only as a class, that he loves those in Christ, he loves you as an individual. And he loves you 
as much as he loved those early believers in Thessalonica. As we read from Deuteronomy 7, why does he love us? There's nothing in us that made us attractive to God. And therefore, his love won't change. He won't change his mind about us when we fail and fall short. He loves us, says the book of Deuteronomy, because he loves us. And that's all the explanation we get. He just loves us. And as we read from John 15, Jesus says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. So get that, get that. Like the Father himself loves his precious Son, like that, Jesus loves you. How great is that love? So when your hope fails, always remember God loves you. Not just that God loves people or God loves the church. He loves you. That's the first way that we are to have hope like the Thessalonians. Second, God chose you. Verse 13 in the middle again. God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. That's the way it's rendered in most English translations. If that's the right translation, the idea, I think, is that the Thessalonians are among the earliest Gentile believers, amongst the earliest non-Jewish believers. But in a number of ancient manuscripts, the verse reads, instead, God chose you from the beginning to be saved. And though in English, first fruits and from the beginning look really different, in Greek it's just one letter that's different between those two. And so some manuscripts have one letter, some manuscripts have the other. The second reading reflects the truth that Paul expresses in Ephesians chapter 1. God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Today, sitting here in Desiring God Community Church, we are not amongst the first fruits of the Gentiles, right? But we are chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Even if that's not what Paul first wrote to the church in Thessalonica. It's a precious truth. So the idea is this. God loved you before you were even conceived. And out of that love, he chose you to belong to him. He delights to choose you as an individual. 
He wasn't doing this reluctantly. He wasn't saying, well, I guess I just have to choose Cody. It was his good pleasure to choose you, to choose me. And what did his choosing lead to? He chose you, says Paul, to be saved. That is, he chose to rescue you from every evil attack, as Paul says in 2 Timothy. He chose to rescue you from anything that would endanger your eternal soul. He chose to rescue you from the dangers, toils, and troubles that could divert you and take you away from him. He chose to save you from the sinful acts of those around you so that their sinful acts will not have an eternal impact on you. He chose to save you from your own sin. He chose to make you his precious child, to make us all together the beloved, spotless bride of Christ. He chose to walk beside you, to organize and orchestrate all events in your life so that you endure in faith to the end and so be saved. God chose you to be saved. So when your hope fails, remember, God chose you to be saved. Third, God makes you holy. Again and again and again in the Old Testament, God tells the Israelites, You shall be holy, for I, Yahweh, your God, am holy. And Jesus says, You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. But we are not perfect. We are not holy. And the problem is not just murderers and child abusers and despots. The problem is inside us, in each one of us. We all sin and fall short of the glory of God. We all are capable of horrible sins apart from God's restraining grace. But in verse 13, Paul tells the Thessalonians they are saved through sanctification by the Spirit. That is, they are saved through being made holy by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit indwells all believers. When the Holy Spirit lives in you, you are holy. Our status changes from being positionally unholy, positionally defiled, to being positionally holy. This is graduation season for various schools and universities. So when you walk on the stage and receive a diploma, your position 
changes, signified in some traditions by moving your tassel from one side to the other of this funny little cap you wear. Previously, you were not a graduate. Now you are a graduate. Your position changes. But change in position, change in graduation status, does not necessarily change behavior, does it? Some are just as foolish and silly after they graduate as they were before. So God does more than change our position. He does change our position. But then he also changes who we are. And the Holy Spirit transforms us more and more practically into Christ-likeness, making our lives more holy, so that we are holy not only in position, but also in practice. Inside our thoughts, attitudes, outside our actions. Sometimes the changes are dramatic. One man I know was an alcoholic, a drunkard. He came to faith in the midst of a drunken stupor, and he never even had the desire to take another drink. Sometimes the changes are, oh, so slow. And sometimes we take steps backwards in holiness. But as Paul tells the Philippians, he who, began, who, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. He promises he saves us in part through sanctification, making us holy in position and over time, making us more and more holy practically. So when your hope fails, always remember God gives you his Holy Spirit. He sanctifies you. He changes your position before him. And he is making you more and more like Jesus. So the first three ways that we have hope, like the Thessalonians, you are loved, you are chosen, you are holy. Fourth, you believe in the truth. Paul says, God chose you to be saved through belief in the truth. In Acts 16, when the Philippian jailer asked Paul, what must I do to be saved? How does the apostle respond? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And Jesus himself says he is the way, the truth, and the life. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He is fully God and fully man. He is the fulfillment of every promise of God, so all the promises of God are yes in him. And he really became 
man. He really lived a holy, perfect life. He really died on the cross. He really rose from the dead, and he will really return. As Peter says, this is not a cleverly devised tale that some people 2,000 years ago made up. As our recent fighter verse says, the risen Jesus appeared to more than 500 people at one time. And Paul wrote that in the first letter to the church in Corinth, maybe 15 at most, 20 years after Jesus was crucified. And so he says, he implies, go talk to these people. They're still around. Some have fallen asleep, but many of those 500 are still there. You can verify this. This is not a cleverly devised tale. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. So believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the truth. Trust him. Rely on him. Know that he is the one great treasure. When your hope fails, remember Jesus is the truth. Believe in the truth. Fifth, verse 14. To this God called you through our gospel. God called you. We have seen before the beginning of time, he chose you to be saved. But then in a particular moment in every believer's life, God called you. Chose him before the foundation of the world, but at a moment called by God. He opened your eyes to see Jesus as that great treasure. And you gladly, willingly, indeed, freely believed. Now understand, in a sense, God calls every human being. Speaking to the Athenians in Acts 17, Paul says, God calls all men everywhere to repent. That general call that goes out to all mankind reflects the obligation that we have as his creatures, as his created beings, to fall before him in worship and acknowledge our sin. That's a general obligation. That's the sense of that call. But in today's text, Paul is speaking not of that general call, but of God's effectual call, his gospel call that comes not only with word, but also with power. You've heard me use the example before of it's like Jesus calling to Lazarus, right? You and I could say, Lazarus, come out of the grave and nothing will happen because there's no power in our call. But when God calls us to himself, it's like Jesus calling Lazarus, Lazarus, come out! And with the word, there is the life-giving power and the dead man rises and comes out. So in this call... 
we inevitably, with this call, we inevitably respond because there is power in the call. In the call, he cries out, you are separated from me, the holy God, by your rebellion, by your sin, even by your ancestry. But my son lived the life you should have lived, loving me with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength every minute of every day, loving every person he encountered as he loved himself. And then he died on the cross, taking on himself the punishment that you deserve. I raised him from the dead, showing that that penalty was completely paid. And so come to me. Come to me through him, he calls. Be my precious child, he says. Believe in the truth. Imagine a young couple, a young man who is in love with a young woman, but she's not so sure about him. This young man is wise. And so day after day, he listens to her. He learns more and more about who she is, what she likes. He learns how he can stand beside her, how he can help her. Day after day, he gives her gifts that delight her. Day after day, he shows her who he is, the type of husband he will be. And this goes on weeks, months. But then one day, her eyes are open and she responds. Just so with God. Just so with God. If you are in Christ, he loved you before the foundation of the world. He chose you. And he works sometimes in a flash, in a moment, oftentimes over months and years, to bring you to the point of seeing Jesus is my husband. There's no one like him. Yes, I will believe. God circumcises our hearts so that we love him. And then we want more than anything else to know him, to follow him, to be with him. He calls and we answer. So when your hope fails, remember, he called you through the gospel. You responded. You are his. Sixth, last, end of verse 14, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus. You have in Christ the glory of Jesus. 
Remember, Paul said something similar back in 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 12, that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him. So amazingly, your life can bring glory to God. As Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, your light must shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. So yes, what we do can bring glory to God. But what Paul emphasizes in today's text is even more amazing. That we, fallen creatures, sinful creatures, we receive the glory of the Lord Jesus. We who fall short of the glory of God, we rebels who deserve judgment, we who have effectively despised him and said we will run our lives by ourselves, thank you very much, we by his grace shine with his glory. We do that today, now, to some extent, as Jesus says. And we do that perfectly when Jesus returns. Remember that image from Revelation that we picked up several months ago? That in the new heavens and the new earth, we are transparent. The whole city is transparent, remember? And the idea is that there's no other light in that city because the glory of God is the light. And everything is transparent so that the glory of God shines through everything and every person. Just so. As Jesus says in Matthew 13, the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. That's you. The righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. So when your hope fails, remember, you today, today in Christ, display some of the glory of Jesus. And that is a huge privilege. And you will obtain his glory fully. You will shine like the sun in the kingdom when he returns. So aren't these six reasons sufficient for giving you hope? You are loved, you are chosen, you are holy. You believe in the truth. You are called through the gospel. You have the glory of the Lord Jesus. The world around us can fall apart. Governments can collapse Wars can rage, murderers can go on rampages, abusers can be protected and their sins covered up. But, but, but those in Christ are loved, are chosen, are holy. Those in Christ have faith, are called, and have the highest glory. That's real hope. So remember that hope. Six ways that we are to have hope like the Thessalonians. One way, then, we are to be like Paul. Beginning of verse 13, the apostle says, 
we ought always, we ought always to give thanks to God for you because God chose you. We ought always to give thanks to God for you because God chose you. Paul says we ought to give thanks for other Christians because God chose them. So, do you thank God that he chose the people around you who are in Christ? Do you thank God for choosing those who come to faith through your witness? Do you thank God for choosing those who help you, who influence you, who teach you, who stand alongside you? In Christian circles, we have lots of debates about election, and if we hold to the doctrine of election, we often do delight in our election. That's good, and that's right. But we should be like Paul and thank God that he chose those around us. Thank God that he chose Bruno. Thank God that he chose Michael. Thank God that he chose Julia. Look around this room. Think of people's names. Think of those who aren't here this morning. Recognize those who have helped you, those who have shown you Jesus in various ways, those who have enabled you to engage with Scripture, as Jacob was talking about, in the various ways that God does that. Those who have modeled the Christian life for you. And then think more broadly in your life. Over decades, consider other believers, maybe a family member, maybe a Sunday school teacher when you were little, maybe a pastor, maybe a neighbor, maybe a teacher. Other believers who have served you and cared for you. Think of the person who led you to faith. And realize that apart from God's grace, apart from God choosing them, you wouldn't have any of that. So pray, thanking God, not just for them, but thanking God for his choosing them. This, too, builds our hope when we reflect like that, because it reminds us that God has been at work orchestrating all these relationships, all these people, bringing the right set of people together, and he continues to be at work today. And he will complete that good work of perfecting his church to the end. So when your hope fails, 
realize that Jesus is not only a great hope. Ultimately, he is the only hope. Your health will let you down. Your education will fail. Your family will let you down. Your employer may fire you. Your friends will not be there forever. Your street smarts or your intelligence, all of it's going to fail. No one else other than Jesus can save you from your sins. No one else other than Jesus can rescue you from every evil attack, whether those are attacks by others or attacks by Satan himself. There is, as this passage tells us, a large falling away from the church, which is yet future, And no one but Jesus can protect you from that, either the impact of that or your own falling away. So Christians, know God's love for you as an individual. That's the foundation of all our hope, that love, that particular love. You are loved, you are chosen, you are holy. And if you wonder, well, that's great hope for Christians, but I don't even know, am I really a Christian? That gospel promise applies to you. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. As David writes, a broken and contrite heart you will not despise. So come to him asking, could you save even me? Could the death of Jesus cover even my sins? Could you love a broken, sinful, hard-hearted person like me? And Jesus says, come to me. All you who are weary, all you who are heavily burdened, and I will give you rest. Come to him, and you will find he loves you with an everlasting love. He chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world, and he will never, ever let you go. You are loved, you are chosen, you are holy because of Jesus. Let's pray together.